This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 24th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So a British man goes to a health clinic with a breathing problem. This problem stymies doctors for a year until finally the case is cracked. So it turns out, for years and years, yeast and fungus had been collecting in the man's bagpipes, slowly killing him. Every time he practiced the bagpipes, he would inhale this toxic mixture. But it was too late for the man. He died two years ago before he could benefit from this newly published medical insight. But would he have even listened to a medical doctor, a guy in a lab coat? No, perhaps only another bagpiper could have intervened and get a dedicated user off the pipe. You've got to quit, man! Quit your piping! Get it through your thick tamashanter! You've got to quit the pipes! Ugh, Angus, I can't get through to him! We pay homage to this unnamed sufferer of bagpipe lung. in the most poignant, and yet when you think about it, totally insensitive way we can. On the show today, neither poignant nor sensitive is my treatment in the spiel of the appearance of the perception of a relationship between a correlation and causality vis-a-vis the Clinton Foundation Secretary of State pay-to-play scandal. That's how Trump says it, pay-to-play. Easier that way, totally inaccurate, but still. But first, the story of a woman who wasn't what she appeared. Rachel Weiss stars in the new movie, Complete Unknown. Or is it Carla Gugino? Gugino. Gugino. You know the one I'm talking about? The one who looks like Rachel Weiss. No, it's not Carla Gugino. It is Rachel Weiss. It's a really good film about a slippery woman who changes characters like some people change Scottish accents. The director of that film, Josh Marston, is up next. In Complete Unknown, Rachel Weiss plays a beautiful, well, of course, shapeshifter. But I don't mean like in the movie Species, more like Catch Me If You Can, though Weiss's character, Alice, or maybe Jenny, doesn't take on identities to try to pull scams exactly. It's more as a means of coping, we think. She would probably say something like survival. The film also stars Michael Shannon, who spans the Jenny-Alice divide. He's on to her. It was directed and co-written by the mercurial Josh Marston. Hello, Josh. Hi. Nice to be here. Good to, good to have you here. So you love b- beautiful brown women in, uh, in focus with the background behind them uh, kind of sprawling out softly. That's your signature shot, it's I a, think. It's a consistent theme. Absolutely. Yeah, right? Yeah. Because you directed Maria Full of Grace, and I saw right. a bunch of those shots yes, in that one. Yes, and, and she did well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was the Albanian film that you did yeah. after Maria <laughs> Full of in, Grace? In, in between, there was this little detour through Albania, uh, about a story about a blood feud between two families. And what language did you write that in? 
I wrote it in English, but we translated it into, into Albanian. And did you, how much Albanian did you speak? By the time we shot, I was conversant. Awesome. I wasn't writing poetry, but and, yeah. And you were, you were more than conversant in Spanish when you wrote Maria yeah, yeah, Fuller fluent, yeah. fluent, in, fluent Spanish. in Spanish. So how is it different to write a movie in English where there, there's some Farsi, but mostly English speakers <laughs> and all for an because English audience? Because of course audience. there's some Farsi. Yeah, how could there not be how some Farsi? There, there wouldn't, wouldn't be a Marston. It wouldn't be a Marston movie. There's also some a Mar- Mandarin. A Marston joint, yes. So um, w- was doing something in English finally one of the lures? Yeah, like, no, it, it, it was a lot of fun to write. It was... Very nice to come up with some witty dialogue and some good banter. It's a, yeah. it's a dinner party movie, so it's got to be. Your first two movies, um, Maria Fuller Grace, the lead actress, was nominated for an Academy Award, right? Yep. Okay, but she was unknown to begin with, That's essentially. Right. And yep. Most of the cast was right. in the second movie. And same same thing, actually. The, the, the lead actor was a high school student who had never acted before in his life, and now he's um, just finished, just graduated from acting school. Yeah. But this one, you fill out the cast really ably with a bunch of people like, how do I know him from? Oh, yeah, uh, Orange yeah. is the New Black or right. whoever. Right. But you got Rachel Weisz and you have General Zod himself, Michael. So A-list yeah. actors. Yeah. Is that just a reflection of how much people like the script, how hot it got? I yeah, guess we, uh, yeah, we were really fortunate. We, we, I knew that I wanted to make the movie quickly. And so we didn't wait until we'd written 18 drafts of the script. It was the first or the second draft of the script that I sent to Rachel Weisz's agent. And... I remember it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and on, on Monday after Thanksgiving, I got a call saying that she had read it and wanted to meet. And we sat and talked for an hour and a half, and that led to us rewriting. And we would rewrite and give her a new draft and meet and talk and go and rewrite again. So that she she was involved in you know the development of it. You know, and Mike Shannon was sort of the opposite. He was he was like, you know, I read a script, I either like it or I don't. I want to do it or I don't, and that's it. Which kind of fits with Michael Shannon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, same with Kathy Bates, you know, it, it was just people read the script. Oh, and they she comes really, in later. I didn't even mention her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kathy Bates, Danny Glover. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was a, it, I felt really fortunate. It was a great cast. And I think that there is, there is something about having the lead character be cast as a recognizable figure that helps the movie. I mean, obviously you want the best actress and also a, a box office uh, attraction, but that we know Rachel Weisz makes it, gives it a little extra uh, frisson. Yeah. I mean, she's an incredibly mysterious actress. She's one of those, uh, for me, there are two types of actors. There are actors who get on camera and they act, and then there are actors who go on camera and they just are. Yeah. And she's one of those actors who can just be in front of the camera and you immediately lean forward and you try and you want to know what she's thinking. You're leaning forward to try and figure her out, which is, which is what this character is all about. We're trying to figure out who she is. <laughs> I bet that some people just run off to Tasmania. I'm sorry. I bet some people just run off to Tasmania. Oh, no, not that I met. Well, what about you? Where would you go? I'd go to Mexico. Mm. Mexico. Mexico is hardly off the grid. No, it was when I went. I went in college and I almost never came back. Like Butch Cassidy. Oh, that was Bolivia, baby. And it did not end well. <laughs> That's why you didn't finish CMU? Yeah, I dropped out completely. I changed my name, everything. Mm-hmm. Why? Just sort of happened. So obviously... Given the facts of the film, she changes identity. She's lying. You know, she's lying to people. He's the one who sniffs out her lie. I think we're supposed to be, or naturally, our sympathies would be aligned with Michael Shannon, yet that gets complicated because of maybe his character, Tom, Tom's intensity, and uh, Jenny, Alice, whatever her her name is, charisma and vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, it's also... 
the movie is is laid out in a way that you wonder who the hell she is and what she's doing at the beginning and then the middle and then somewhere somewhere along the line you begin to question and, and maybe suspect her and you're not really on her side and then as you figure out more about why she's doing what she's doing and what it's about one of the ideas was to you know, imagine this room full of people and once you figure out who she is and the fact that she's changed her identity yeah that that's like a bomb that goes off in the room and polarizes the room. And there's some people who side with her and think it's fascinating and, and, and they're envious. And there are other people who th- completely judge it and think it's awful. His wife, Michael Shannon's wife, definitely sides with it and thinks it's fascinating because yeah. she, presumably she's done this in her own life in some to some extent. She's transplanted herself. The, her friend is not quite so... Yeah. Well, there's also a man-woman divide to it. Yeah, and yeah. that was something that came up in the in, in the script when we, you know when we were before we were shooting, we gave the script to people and found that we got different responses from men and from women, and had to be very careful to make sure that it was that she was understandable and likable because yes. I I like her and I understand why she's doing what she's doing, and you know had this the thought experiment. Well, what if the main character were a man doing this? And it's so much less interesting because. In a patriarchal society, that's what men have done for millennia. You know, yeah. they 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 pack up and they move on and they leave and they leave everyone behind. And typically, it's the woman who has to stay at home. And so, the idea that it's a woman who's going out and having all these experiences is what I think makes her different. The idea of the patriarchy, like you say, that means the man gets to be one thing and I am that thing, right? And everyone right. else has to react right. to me, right. right? Okay. Do you think that the lying, the lying inevitable in what she does, serves the goal of identity change, or does changing identity serve the goal of lying? It's funny you ask that because I, I I got into this debate with Rachel Weisz as we were making the movie that she would refer to the character as a liar, and I and I bristled at that because. Yeah, there's a certain amount of lying and fabrication that she does, you know, forging documents and diplomas in order to to get her way into these identities. But then once she's in, she becomes the person. She starts doing the jobs, being being the individual. And over time, she is that thing. And so for me, that is less about lying. And that's actually being the person. So I don't actually view her. Yeah, there's a little bit of lying that goes on, but I don't view her as a liar. I view her as actually having been all these people. It's interesting an actress would say that. That's right. what acting is right. to some extent. I had so many actors. That a actors, writer wouldn't, yeah. So and many, a journalist like you are so also. Many, yeah. So many actors who came in for auditions who would sit down and they immediately say, you realize you wrote a script that's all about what we do as actors. Right. You know, we go, we go off and we become all these other people. Um, the difference being that actors go home at the end of the day and they return to their real selves, whereas she really fully is doing it. And that's, and that's one of the things that was fascinating for us in writing it is to imagine what are the consequences of that if you were really to do that emotionally? Where would you end up 10 or 15 years down the line? Also, the stakes. If an actor doesn't do a good job in someone's eyes, maybe he or she gets a bad review uh, with what she's doing. You might get thrown in jail. Yeah, yeah, or worse. Um, so if you, I don't know, have you read, uh, Maria Konnikova comes on the show and she wrote a lot about Fernando de la Mara, the great imposter, and she talks about the psychology of imposters, how they're often sociopaths, did you read that literature? Did that inform you at all? I, I did to an extent and watched. There are were, there were various documentaries of people who have done something like this. Yeah. It was very important that the, she's not crazy. Which There's a path, pathological quality to what she's doing. She's sort of addicted to the thrill of doing it and she does it again and again. But she's not crazy. This is not Sybil. This is not some of the multi, multiple personality disorder because it would be too easy to dismiss her if she was just crazy. I mean, she's in many respects very normal and what she's doing, the impulse is normal and relatable. Well, it's an adaptive strategy and the great imposter guys at a certain point it becomes maladaptive. He puts himself in so much, um, he puts himself at, risk and without the risk he's not thrilled by it but 
Jenny Alice is not the same. I right. call it Jenny Alice. Jenny Alice, but there's, there's, there's 10 other names in between. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, part of the idea is that, okay, okay we've all ha- heard a story about someone who went off and changed their identity. That's what the witness protection program stories are all so fascinating because everyone's fascinated by the idea that you change your identity once. Well, what happens if you've changed your identity and then after a while, that second identity sort of runs its course? What do you do? You go back to the first one do you, or if you go on and become a third. Yeah. And then a fourth, pretty soon you're stuck. Like you can only go forward, which is what's happened to her. Right. What genre do you think this movie is? It's funny you ask that because- There are like six that we acknowledge. Right, I don't right. know if it fits well, in that's, Well, that's the whole thing about the movie is, you know, I, I had this had this idea of this woman who keeps changing her identity and we're writing it and we had we had an idea for a storyline and we got kind of, we were like halfway through and, and it was clear what the conventional storyline would be. And I just sort of felt antsy. I was like, I don't want to just go in the anticipated direction. And so we, that's how Kathy Bates and Danny Glover show up is we take this left turn in the middle of the movie and it becomes something else. And it, it does that again and again. That's, it was the same impulse that I had in creating our character was the same impulse that I had in the structuring of the movie. So yeah, it, it, it keeps shape-shifting. Yeah. Josh, how many identities have you had? Um, mostly as a filmmaker, but you know, I've dabbled in journalism and, and, uh, been an English teacher in Prague way back in the day. And, but we worked together at NPR for a while. Yeah. I mean, not together, not collaborative. You were we on were Planet Money. Room. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. on the other side. Yeah. And I was like, what is the director doing here? Yeah. 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 What were you doing? I was, I, you were not, you were not, it wasn't, uh, an, a, was it an internship? Uh, no, I just sort of Adam Davidson invited yeah. me to come to a story meeting. I said, "Can I keep coming?" And yeah. eventually, I did a podcast with with Keston Baum and yeah. and tried to do as much as I could because what they were doing at Planet Money was fascinating to me. And every time I said, "You know, yeah, I'm a movie director," but what I really want to do is get into public radio. They would all roll their <laughs> eyes like I was crazy. But you know, I, actually, if I was going to if I was going to change my identity and become something else, it would probably be a, a, a journalist. Because you started off, did you start off as a journalist? I after college, I worked briefly. Um, I went. It was during the you know, depending on how old the listeners are, they may yeah. remember the first Gulf War. I was yeah. in Paris um, working at ABC News and Life Magazine. Well, that tells you the era. Yeah, mentioning Life Magazine, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. that yes. and the fact that that was a very short-lived ground war. So it, it was a short-lived detour through, you know, along the way. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Complete unknown, Josh Marston. Now, this movie opens in New York on August 26th, and it opens in LA and other cities uh, over the Labor Day weekend. And now the spiel. Yesterday, I talked about how the Clinton Foundation charitable donation scandal was no scandal for the same reason that these were not really charitable donations. They were all just footprints of power. That's what they are. A million dollars donated. That's power leaving a breadcrumb. A phone call to a Clinton staffer. That's just a footprint in the sand. Let's pour plaster in the cast. Get the results back from the lab. You know what it says? It says power. How power is used and wielded. Powerful people give to other powerful people. Meetings are had, or maybe they're not. Favors are done, or maybe they're not. The difference with this Clinton stuff is we can add a couple more phrases like malaria is combated, HIV is treated. Powerless people think access is power because powerless people don't have either. But powerful people know it's a little bit different. That power gets you access, but access alone doesn't give you power. It's usually necessary. It's never quite sufficient. 
If anything, the Clintons used their power for good, you could argue, to fight diseases in Africa. They used the normal powerful person inclination to side up to other powerful people to bend the ears of the powerful. They used that to extract charitable donations. Not that the Clintons' goal was purely pure. The foundation made Bill feel relevant, kept him a player, boosted Hillary's prestige too. So after I recorded yesterday's gist, the AP came out with its report detailing what I said was possible, that there could have been a quid pro quo. So I read the story. I waited for them to lower the boom. The boom never came. There was some good reporting. I mean, they sued the State Department for records, and they found that a lot of people who gave to the Clintons met with Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. But the AP never came close to proving that the meetings changed policy. And more importantly, the AP didn't show a causation between donations and the meetings. Now you're saying, what am I stupid? What am I naive? They give this money and they have the meetings. How much more causation do you need? No, that's a correlation. And I'm not being thick because so many of these people in the story, I think, would have met with the secretary of state under any circumstance. And here's Stephen Braun, co-author of that AP report. You know, we're not saying crimes were committed here. Um, We're not. uh, There's there's no evidence that uh, there were ethics broaches here. Braun said that on MSNBC's Morning Joe. Morning Joe said this. My gosh, that AP report came out uh, yesterday uh, in the afternoon. Holy cow, we're going to get into that news about the foundation. Morning Joe was gobsmacked by the AP story. And all the panelists on today's show found themselves similarly coming up short of breath. For the Associated Press to write in a news story this term that it was, quote, an extraordinary proportion shows you just how out of skew this was. It really was breathtaking when I, when I, when I read the story. Here was the stat that wasn't to be believed. According to the AP, at least 85 of the 154 people from private interests who met or had phone conversations scheduled with Clinton when she led the State Department donated to her family charity or pledge commitments to its international programs. I could not believe that stat either. 154 people? Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State from January 2009 to February of 2013. It was a total of 1,473 days. The AP is reporting that she met with 154 people. Now, the AP clarified that those are only the non-government employees. So they weren't counting, for instance, the Crown Prince of Bahrain. But still, that seems extraordinarily low to me. That nine out of 10 days as Secretary of State, she didn't meet with anyone who wasn't a government employee. The AP further clarified that these were just the records that they had access to. There was a lawsuit after all. But still, it doesn't seem right. And what's more, the story leans heavily on Clinton's role helping donor Mohammed Yunus, also known as Nobel Peace Prize recipient Mohammed Yunus. The guy pioneered micro lending. He's a force for elevating, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people out of poverty. At times, his country, Bangladesh, which Freedom House ranks as only partly free, was hindering his work. Now, I want my secretary of state helping Mohammed Yunus. And yes, indeed, she did. And yes, indeed, he gave to the Clinton Foundation. But I looked at all Nobel Peace Prize winners of that era. He was the 2006 winner. The 2007 winner Hillary Clinton met with, his name was Al Gore. Hillary Clinton also worked with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, co-won the award with Al Gore. 
In 2008, the winner was Marty Atasari. He never donated to the Clinton Foundation from what I could tell, but Hillary Clinton did break bread with him. I came across this announcement from FOSS, the Forum of Small States. They had an anniversary conference in October of 2012. There were 230 participants, and they said that the main level speakers would be UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and former president of Finland and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Marty Atasari. I don't have a picture of them together. Perhaps Hillary gave her remarks over breakfast and Atasari left after lunch but it's more than likely that they met. In 2009, the Nobel went to Barack Obama. Hillary met with him. In 2010, it went to jailed Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo. He's jailed. In 2011, it went to three women. I know she met with Liberia President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And here's tape of her meeting with another of the Nobel laureates, Tawakol Karman. Well, I am extremely honored uh, to welcome uh, here to the State Department uh, a woman that I had the privilege of meeting for the first time during my visit to Yemen. The year after that, the Nobel went to the European Union. She's been to Europe. My point is this. Meeting with the Nobel Peace Prize winner is what the Secretary of State does. It's what she should do. That one of them, one of the wealthiest ones, gave money to a foundation fighting disease and resolving political conflict makes sense. That's all a good thing. Not a bad thing. It's all a good thing. Now, it would be bad if the foundation indeed interceded on behalf of donors to act in ways that weren't in the public interest. That seemed to be the case, and this wasn't in the AP story, this was in stories that came out beforehand. It detailed how Casey Wasserman, a Clinton donor, a big Hollywood power broker, asked someone in the foundation to help out one of his soccer players who was trying to come to Las Vegas, but he couldn't get a visa because he'd been arrested in England. Well, I spoke with one of his representatives today, and she pointed out that the player never got that visa. Furthermore, it's been reported that the requested meeting never happened. A scandal would be if donations led to policy. A headache would be if donations led to access that wouldn't have happened absent the donations. A real problem would be if all this stuff, though unprovable, had a real appearance of a conflict of interest. But none of those things is what the AP commits to. The AP writes it this way. The intermingling of access and donations fuels perceptions that giving the Clinton Foundation money was a price of admission for FaceTime with Clinton. It doesn't even go out and assert that this has the appearance. It says it fuels perceptions. Perhaps others think it appears this way. Whose perceptions does it fuel? I guess maybe people who read the headline of the AP story, but not the full body. But you know who will draw conclusions about this? Unfair, kind of crazy conclusions. It is now abundantly clear that the Clintons set up a business to profit from public office. They sold access and specific actions by and really for I guess, the making of large amounts of money. Well, at least if the media mischaracterized the scope of Clinton's missteps, the media will surely put into context the outlandishness of Trump's claims. Let's see, CNN. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars selling access, selling favors, selling government contracts, and I mean hundreds of millions of dollars. Despite that claim, there are no definitive examples of what Trump says. But that doesn't mean there aren't questions. Sure, like 
claims of Muslims celebrating on rooftops or Ted Cruz's dad killing Kennedy or crime rising or real unemployment being 42%. No evidence, but that doesn't mean there aren't questions. Yes, indeed, there are plenty of questions. Now, how about an answer, not an appearance or a perception or the optics of an answer? And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Chris Berube, who suffers from zither wrist, which is closely related to auto harp arm, which is just producer Mary Wilson's ailment. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He knows all too well the effects of sousaphone orbital bone. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has fought a valiant fight against violin shin. The Gist, total organ failure jeopardized my musical career and my life. Umpuru deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.